Hello and welcome back to another edition of Friends of the Vine Wine Podcast. I'm going to start this podcast with a little conversation with you guys on how much I appreciate everyone listening and following my little podcast. And specifically, I want to mention that there's a reason why I pick the people that I pick for this podcast. For me, there's some sort of emotional connection, and I think that that would translate well to you, the listener. These are people that I've connected with in a meaningful way, and I figure that that connection can translate well to a podcast, and our conversations would translate well. So I don't necessarily want to just pick any single person or any random person for the sake of doing a podcast or doing an interview or doing a chat. For me, it's about the connection I have with those people that I chat with. So that's why I'm specific. For me, it's about the quality of the podcast, not the quantity. So having said all that, this next podcast, this next episode is with Christina Rasmussen. She is a writer based out of London. She writes for a couple different publications. One is called The Buyer, and the other one is called Sprudge. And she has a great writing style, and we connected on Instagram, as most of my connections are made. We connected on Instagram and instantly fell into a great conversation. And again, it's that emotional connection, that chemistry, that that meaning behind our, our conversations. And for me, we started having great chats and I thought, you know what, let's let's do a podcast. So this is this is us chatting. And later on in the episode, I just want to also mention we're going to do a return of the barbecue sessions. So Daryl and I back at the barbecue and most of our conversation on this uh, barbecue sessions is actually talking about scotch because we both went to Scotland recently we went in uh, late July, early August, and they just went in September. So actually, most of our conversation is talking about scotch, but it's a great chat as always with Daryl. So I wanted to include it in here as well. With all that in mind, let's get right into it. Well, certainly in regards to restaurants and the wine scene, and and there's a lot of great a lot of great stuff in in especially in London. Yes, we're very lucky. We get wine pretty much from everywhere. Um, from you know California to France to Georgia to yeah I've even tried an Iranian wine so <laughs> oh nice a friend yeah, a friend yeah. of mine had a Moroccan wine the other day and uh, it was a Sir- yes Morocco yeah I'm hopefully going to Morocco hopefully going there in a few weeks time and I've never actually had Moroccan wine but I will source some out there if I get there <laughs> I think one of the one of the producers was a guy who was from the Rhone Valley so. It's kind of a Rome, Rome Valley style Syrah in, in Morocco. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Quite Scythian. <laughs> what's we'll come that? To that. Yeah. Scythian, but we'll come to that. Well, yeah, I was, I was going to say that I, I like that article. I like that nomadic winemaking um, piece. Yeah, it was great. How did you come about with that idea? Was it just hanging out with Raj, Raj and those guys or? Yes. So um, the story started really with, well, you know, I don't know if you know, but Abe Schoener used to be a philosopher professor at St. John's University. Um, And he studied the Scythians to some extent. And Raj was listening to a podcast and about the Scythians. And he walked into the Ten Bells in one winter evening and stumbled upon Abe. um, And they got talking about the Scythians. And then they got talking about Scythian wine. And voila, we did this sort of Scythian wine tasting. And I guess it's 
It's because the Scythians were an ancient nomadic um, Iranian people, and they travel between, um, well, in the southern Russian steppe, and they travel between um, southern Siberia up to northern China, um, even as far as the Black Sea. And even just, I spoke to Raj earlier today, and he said, I've just uncovered some papers that suggested the the um, Scythians were in northern India, so they might have been there too. <laughs> From around the nine, 900 to 200 BC, but they travelled nomadically always, and they um, never stopped and settled. They're well known for sort of barbaric nature and, and their bravery, um, and... In doing so, we sort of started thinking about how that reflects some winemakers' approach to making wine. And so we sort of started thinking about what sort of wines were Scythian by nature, and then did our first Scythian tasting. But um, we were speaking the other day about it, and we've been doing some of our own reading. And while the Scythians were well known for drinking sort of um, this fermented mare's milk thing and getting blind drunk from it, they also drank, um, I think they were possibly the first people recorded to drink unadulterated wine. So by that, I mean wine that wasn't blended with water. Okay. Um, whereas the Greeks and the Romans drank wine that was blended with water. And I suppose perhaps the right word would be daunted, that they were too daunted to drink wine without water, whereas the Scythians, as brave as they were, while they didn't make their own wine, they did drink uh, um, unadulterated wine. So that also sort of leads to, you know, modern day winemakers making wine in more of a Scythian way that we think in terms of not um, fiddling with their wines and not putting in chemicals and thinking about things in a different way and approaching winemaking in a different sort of, I don't, I don't know, we, you could say the philosophy of oxygen, so approaching winemaking more of a reductive style, um, more of a pure way. And yeah, the meat, yeah, I guess you, we even got on to talking like planting like Scythians. <laughs> I think recovering plant DNA material, um, for example, with old forgotten grape varieties, in France, a lot of people are trying to bring them back, which is hugely important, I think, anyway. The 20 most prominent varieties in France represent today 90 or 91% of French vineyard area, whereas back in 1958, it was only 53%. Hmm. So that's a huge loss of grape variety plantings. That probably has a lot to do with consumer demand of knowing, um, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blanc, the big names, but also, um, of course, post-phylloxera, we lost so much material. So I really admire people who are trying to bring material back and trying to recover old grape varieties. And I think we're seeing a movement now towards people really investing in um, old varieties that previously were less lesser well-known. I, I totally agree. And that, I, I think that's also people becoming more, they're wanting, they're willing to try new things and they're willing to try a variety that they've never tried before. Definitely. And I mean, one of the wines that we tasted then was the the Hayu wine far, farm, um, where Nate Reddy has been um, replanting and putting um, Pinot Gris and Pinot Noir in um, field blends and making wine like that. Um, and he, one of his wines, you know, it's a Solera, Solera wine coming from 2013, 2014, 15, 16. Even though that on paper, you would think, oh, that sounds quite funky. Um, it's incredibly pure and beautifully expression of, of um, his terroir and... That for me is, you know, taking what we deem terroir to be as humans and coming out with our own interpretation of it. I live out in Vancouver, so they, when it comes to appellations and dictating how we run things out here, they've got very limited rules and, and regulations in that regard. So you can definitely yes. play around for sure. The, the wide varieties of style and 
and it's great varieties that you can plant and it's just um you know putting faith in the winemakers that they they know what they're doing and they know what will work best for their soils and with their very unique microclimates so yeah i think we're seeing really exciting things these days people are yeah. a little bit more brave yeah yeah that's for sure they've they've just kind of recently got into they call them geographical indicators is what they call them here as opposed to appellations and then they've just yeah. recently had a couple of sub sub geographical indicators because that microclimate is so unique to that area that they're starting to kind of say this area is its own little, you know, its own little spot in the world, shall we say. So how did you get into writing in the first place? How did, how did that, because you've, you've obviously been picked up by a few places and I know you're, you're specific to a couple different, a couple different publications, but how did that kind of fall, fall into place for you? Ever since I was really small, sort of about 10 years old, I used to write, um, and I actually used to write um, these tiny little novel series about horses. <laughs> <laughs> but I've always been a writer. Um, and then I did French at university, French literature and philosophy. And on my year abroad, I went to Burgundy to work as a stagiaire um, at Louis Latour. Okay. And that's how I then got to know Burgundy. And I mean, I, I was young at the time, I was 21, and I didn't really know anything about producers. I knew the appellations quite well, but the producers were still relatively unknown to me and I actually found a box of things from my time there um, around a year ago and in there was a bottle of Claude de Corvée, um Nuit Saint-Georges 2000 from Prieur et Roch um, <laughs> and at the time obviously I drank it and I decided that it was so amazing that I should save the bottle but I knew nothing about Prieur et Roch and I knew nothing about minimal intervention winemaking. It was my first foray into wine but mm. Clearly for me, that was a very special bottle. After that, I then went to work for where I still am. I worked for a, a very tiny agency doing wine um, consulting, trade development and um, marketing. So we help um, wineries get into the UK market. We do lots of journalist press trips and we communicate from wineries to journalists. So I have been away with um, Jamie Good quite a few times, who's become a very close friend of mine and uh, I'd say some to some extent a mentor I ask him a lot of a lot of questions and someone like Margaret Rand as well who I hugely look up to I love her writing and we went on a wild vine hunt to southwest France last year which was amazing so I sort of started to shadow a few journalists and even before that I set up my own wine blog which was about four years ago now um called Vintage of All Kinds I then changed the name just to my own name last year and started writing more and more on that when I, whenever I could. And then I got picked up by The Buyer, which is a relatively new, well, it's two years old now, um, trade magazine publication in London, um, set up by two people, one um, a bit industry vet veteran who was originally the editor of Harper's, Richard Siddle, and Peter Dean. So I started writing for them, and they give me very free reign on the content that I write about. So I'm, I'm lucky in that respect. And so therefore, it generally tends to be my own pitches pictures and my own content that I generate for them. Then Sprudge came about as well, um, about this time last year. So I send them some really, yeah, some fun, natural things. <laughs> and I'm hopefully working on our, on our own project with a friend of mine who manages a wine bar out here called Beedales. So we are hoping to do a print publication, which will be mainly, it uh, will be short format. Um, so for sommeliers who don't have very much time, for example, to read in between shifts and photography led and with sort of really geeky sections. I want it to be quite wine nerd magazine 
so about ampelography and winemaking details and I want to have sort of subjects of debate so we could do like the SO2 debate and get quotes from winemakers from one side and the other and people who fall in between and so I'm looking forward to that it's just finding the time <laughs> yeah the ones in the buyer were those uh, those photographs yours as well because I, I believe you said you're a photographer as well yes they're my photos as well okay yeah and I always love when you've got a well-written article and you have great photos to go with it because it, it just seems to tie in so well. Yes, it's very important to me as well because I feel I'm, I'm so lucky to spend so much time with um, incredible winemakers doing amazing things and relaying their stories and trying to find angles and asking them questions to uncover all sorts of aspects. And by taking photos of that too, it sort of captures the entire story as one. So for me, that's very important. I love my camera. It's an Olympus EP5. I still don't really know how to use it, <laughs> but it does okay. Um, well, that's, that was that's a recommendation like, from Jake. He, yeah, sometimes I bring him, like, I can't figure out how to press this button. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but it seems to be going okay. And I absolutely love it. I'd love to get more into photography. The dream would be to get a Leica, but they're so frightfully expensive. So maybe one day when I earn a bit more money. But <laughs> yeah. I'm only 27. Well, if I buy 35, I will have a Leica. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you're, you've got years and decades to go in the industry. So you're just getting your, getting your foothold in there. So, which, which is great to, to be at your age and to know what you want to do with the rest of your life is, is, uh, is excellent. So, uh, I know Brian McClintock had, had said the same thing about his uh, his articles that he writes on his on his on the Viticole site. He said, you know, even if they just look at the photos and they like the photos, you know, and read half the content, yeah. he's he's happy. If I spend special moments with winemakers and manage to capture those moments on photos, that tells half the story. Let's talk desert island grape varietals. Desert island grape varieties. Okay, um, so I did narrow it down to one, which is very rare for me <laughs> because I write too much and I think too much. <laughs> I always thought, if, I mean, if, if it was one region, it would be Burgundy. <laughs> but if it was one grape, I'd be inclined to say I think it would be Mondas. I absolutely love Mondas. And I remember I first tasted it at, so a client I work for is called Pimon Producteur, and they're based in southwest France, and they're doing a ton of research into rediscovering old grape varieties. Um, and they have a pre phylloxera parcel that dates back to 1810. And on that parcel, they found, after they found out they could do DNA testing, they found 21 different grape varieties, some of which can't be used in production because they're non-hermaphrodites. Non -hermaphrodites. Um, but the other ones um, have proven to be really exciting. So they're reintroducing things like Tardif, which was never even recorded in the National Catalogue for Grape Varieties, and Monseigne Noir, and which, were, which was recorded, but they only had one plant in the um, National Conservatory, which is down in the south of France somewhere. But anyway, at this, um, at this meeting that they did about um, rediscovering grape varieties and um, ampelographic research, they teamed up with the um, people in the Savoie who were doing a very similar thing. It's called the Pierre Gallet Centre. And of course, the tale of Mondes, especially in the last few years, I think is, is really fascinating with um, Priere Saint-Christophe. What he's been doing, I think, is there's some sublime wines and... They were the first wines that I ever tasted. And I, I tasted them again with Mark Andrew of Noble Rot a couple of years later and just totally fell in love with that wine. And then I discovered things like Beloir and um, all the other guys. And 
I think it's such a promising grape variety. It's a fascinating, fascinating grape variety because it's so, it's so nobody really knows that much about it. And it was only very recently discovered that it's either due to genetic research, it's either the half sibling or the grandparent of Syrah, mm. which I think is very cool. That, that <laughs> and there's only cool. around 300 hectares, only around 300 hectares of it now. Um, but it's a growing figure and people are doing things, really amazing things with it in California as well. So um, I know Raj has some and Jamie Motley has some too. And Legia Meredith, of course, who is one of the first people to really do carry out all of this research. She's making an amazing Mondes. And there even happens to be some in Sicily by mistake. They ordered, I think they ordered Syrah and they got Mondes instead. But <laughs> it's working out pretty well for them. <laughs> That's cool. And I think people will start planting it more. And I don't know if you've had Jamie's um, Mondes, but it's really incredible. And I'm certain that Raj will do something really brilliant with it as well. I haven't tasted his yet. But. That would be a good source for me because I can just go down to Washington and uh, when he, if he, if he develops that, then that'd be great. I can just go down to Washington. I'm half an hour from Washington State, so mm-hmm. that's cool. That that's a that's a unique uh, a unique grape for sure. To to uh, if you're going to be only having yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think otherwise I would have to say probably Pinot Noir, but it's yeah, it's it's very difficult to make that decision. But yeah. I've just been, I was just in California um, three or four weeks ago and I went to see the seedling project that um, Raj and Sashi have and spoke in depth with um, Sashi about it yesterday because I'm going to write up um, a, a report. And he said some very fascinating things about how due to the fact that Pinot Noir is such an ancient grape variety, during the times of the monks, they would plant with seed, um, from seed, which today nobody nobody really does. Um, but due to the fact that we've propagated and taken so much clonal material over the years for Pinot, we've ultimately um, weakened our DNA of Pinot. So what they're trying to do is trying to find a Pinot Noir expression from seed that will ultimately express the terroir of the Santa Rita Hills and be better adapted to um, the American climate and the American soils and the differentiation that they have with the soils there. So, I mean, if you could travel forward in time, <laughs> possibly I would take whatever they find. <laughs> but it's going to be many, many years before they really have results. But then there might be a future exciting Pinot Noir type variety in the interesting. making. <laughs> that's that's interesting because uh, Santa Rita and, and Oregon even uh, have got such a unique uh interpretation of pinot so that would be yeah. uh that would be very cool to see down the road for sure yeah like you said if you could fast forward 30 years from now or whatever yeah i think it's going to be more like 100 years maybe. yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe when i'm 90 i'll sit and drink a glass of um, pinot noir from a seedling <laughs> yeah we'll see <laughs> you were in bc as well were you not you did some I was in BC. some bc yeah. tasting Yes, I was there um, at the end of well, no, was July last year, and I absolutely love what they're doing there. I think it's fascinating. I think the terroir differentiation and particularly the climate differentiation is mind-boggling. Mm. You know, going from the, the northern Okanagan where Riesling and Pinot, Syrah and Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Fond um, is, are thriving, and then into the Similkameen where you have a little bit of two because you have such um, 
the similcamine is so interesting because you have such huge differentiation from just parcel to parcel. So you're able to plant gamay kind of next to something like Cabernet Sauvignon, which is pretty much not possible anywhere else. Yeah. No, I actually loved it. And I mean, the amount of wineries is too many to even mention, but I love what the Okanagan Crush Pad is doing, particularly with Gamay. And they do this amazing reductive style of Pinot Gris in egg, which I think is just beautiful. And I sat on the panel for um, the Judgment of BC, where we blind tasted Pinot Gris. And for me, that came up number, number one, because I think it's just, you know, it's mineral and complex and such length and that beautiful spine tingling reduction which is so hard to get right and then what else there's Bella so mm. Bella and the Okanagan I think are doing amazing things with Gamay and Chardonnay both as ancestral petnat methods and as traditional method researching how to do traditional methods with sort of um must or juice to get an indigenous second fermentation as well or yeah which I think is very exciting and they also make a Mariani vineyard ancestral from the Gamay clone. I think it's 787. Firstly, I've never studied Gamay clones. <laughs> and secondly, this one is just fascinating because the, the wine actually ends up more of a peach color. Okay. It has these peach apricot, apricot stone textural, amazing dimensions to it. And that was one of my highlights of the trip. It was just, you know, mind-boggling. And that's sort of the example of taking really exciting plant matter and putting it into a place where there previously hasn't been vinifera like that and then seeing what happens. And there's this magic combination of Scythian thinking and terroir. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good way to put it because even there's even grapes, like they just started doing Shannon. There's, there's a couple of different places are doing Shannon, for example. There's so many grape varieties that apparently... Um, uh, Katie Truscott, who is a wine writer in the Okanagan, I had her on a few episodes ago. She said there's, I think there's about 80, 80 different varieties right now that you, yes. that you can find up here. Obviously, there's, you know, say a dozen of the most, you know, common ones. But there's so many different ones now that people are trying. They're like, hey, let's try it. Let's, let's see yes. if it works or not. Kalmana even have a high elevation um, gruner. <laughs> so, wow. I mean, gruner, not Um with wild yeasts as well, and it's a really stunning wine, and that comes from one of the highest vineyards in the Okanagan, I think. But that's very cool as well. And Little Farm, I love what they're doing with yeah. Riesling, and Orofino with Riesling and Gamay, and Martin's Lane with Riesling and Pinot, and yeah, that's yeah. just too mentioned. Tantalus, what they do, I love their sparkling Riesling. Is yeah, they're the mine. they're the they're the benchmark for Riesling, I would yes. say, in the Okanagan is Tantalus. They even make ice wine syrup. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. <laughs> Very sapient. <laughs> yeah. It's, it seems, you know, Chardonnay and Riesling and then Pinot and Syrah uh, are the kind of the benchmark ones up here. Uh, a bit of Merlot, um, a bit of Cap Franc. But, yeah, those are kind of like your ones that, that seem to be the coming out just beautifully out here, especially, like you said, like places like Tangelus and Yes. Uh, there's so many great there's so many great uh, wineries up here and it's very exciting as well because the vines are just getting to you know about 40 years old especially at places like tantalus um whereby some of them um the roots are going so deep that we might be able to do unirrigated mm. um winemaking and i think tantalus is experimenting with that so it's an exciting future once For we sure. have all the, all the vines in the in the region 
it'd be nice to see somewhere like London or New York or, you know, uh, Sydney or somewhere starting to pick up a lot more of the Okanagan wines and, and starting to see them. It's happening here, definitely. Yeah. yeah. We're getting um, a few more over here now. So slowly but surely. <laughs> yeah. I love the I love the London wine scene. I love the, like you said, Noble Rot and, and uh, Sager and Wild. Yeah. Uh, there's so many great spots out there for, there's a real culture for the, you know, the after work drinks and there's a lot of great little places to go and stuff. And we're lucky as well because we have such a brilliant balance of, you know, in inverse commas, more natural wines and biodynamic, beautiful wines, but also, you know, very classic and fine wines and you can really find everything here. I'm just going to check my questions. Mm-hmm. But I think... Memorable wines, that was the one. Memorable <laughs> wines, yeah, that was the other one. Um, yeah, I had to think about this one. <laughs> There's yeah. there too many. <laughs> too many to mention? Well, I've got a few, yeah, a few good ones, but we had... So I was in Burgundy last week and I had dinner with um, Thomas Barry, who's the assistant winemaker at Jean-Yves Bizot. Let's just go back to the fact that you were in Burgundy last week. Let's just start with that. <laughs> I was only there for two days. I was in the Rhone for a day and then in Burgundy for two days. I just love yeah. the fact that, especially for us, just to get out of Canada takes five hours. So <laughs> I'm um, very, very lucky. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, I could probably be in California in two hours. So that would be, I could, I could probably say, well, I was just in Napa. That would be my equivalent. I think I would be able to say because everything's yes. so close. That's the only thing that's for me being on Vancouver. That's it's close. So, yes. okay. So anyway, back, you're in Burgundy. So I was in Burgundy and, um, was with, yes, Thomas Barry, who's the um, assistant winemaker at Bizo in Von Romane. And I think we have fairly similar tastes in wine, but he blinded me on a wine and that wine has massive levels of rotundin <laughs> so i thought it was probably going to be some kind some kind of um northern Rhone syrah but it turns out it was mondes um and it was um michel grisard um of saint christophe so he has retired and um sold the domaine but he made his last vintage in 2014 and it that's sort of yeah an, an ultimate scythian nomadic wine because he couldn't use his winery because he'd, he'd stopped, uh, well, moved on so he took the his his grapes to his brother's winery but his brother's winery had already finished and shut the winery and said well you know it's, it's shut now or whatever i'm not quite sure what the story is because it's second hand but he then ended up having to leave the wine on skins for a year <laughs> um and then i think in in a tank for another year and then eventually pressed off and alas you have this uh Prier Saint Christophe that's labelled differently and it just says M dot 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 fourteen and I think it's a Vin de France because I think it's um, slightly falls outside of the you know appellation system, but that's a, an amazing wine, mm. and it yeah it's just mind boggling because it's so peppery and so complex with so many layers. Now that it's fourteen, it's had a few years in bottles, so it's not harsh at all. It's just stunning. Lovely. So I'm going to the Savoir with Raj next year. Um, so I've already said, can we go to that wine shop that sells this wine? <laughs> Hopefully I can stockpile some. Because <laughs> I don't think it's exported at all because it was made in such small quantities. But that was an amazing wine. And before that, I was in the Rhone and I went to see Thierry Allemand. He very kindly opened a bottle of Renard 1998. Yeah, stunning. For me, he's one of the best winemakers in the whole world. And his vineyards, the, what he manages to do with them is just phenomenal. And that was a really, really, truly special wine. And then I had 
Abe's first ever wine, <laughs> which was a 1999 Sangiovese. Oh, lovely. And, oh, it was just, it was that, that was really special. That was at Abe's house uh, about a month ago, sitting on, you know, his little, little pool, which he calls Swan Lake, <laughs> drinking this wine that he, you know, for him so special. It's his first ever wine that he made and the wine that John Kongsgaard tasted and said, this is the best wine you're ever going to make. <laughs> <laughs> and it had barely, you know, it had barely really aged. It, it was starting to show a really pretty, slightly tertiary, you know, sort of dusty character but it was so light on its feet and beautiful and shining and that was very very special and I think he only has maybe five bottles more or something mm. left and they actually only found that in, in the winery move so he's moving um currently moving the winery down to LA which is also very Scythian very nomadic <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so they found it in the move and I, I think before then he had thought that it had just been lost or that he didn't have any extra bottles left so that was very special Cool. Um, and apart from that, at Raj's did um, a reduction study talking about the philosophy of oxygen. And we had a Richard Loire 11 and um, the Murat 2014, two of which are my favorite wines as well. And, mm. you know, spoke, spoke about the philosophy of oxygen and how reduction happens from lease contact and whether it happens from yeah, lease contact, lack of oxygen, both combined. And then also the combination of reduction and oxygenation at the same time, how that works out and really brilliant chat. So I'll, I'll write something about that at some point as well when I get some time. Oh yes. And then Raj sent me a photo on text of a uh, rosé from Blockenland. And I was like, why is Raj sending me a photo of a rosé? Like I love, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I love rosé, but it's not like, wow. But anyway, we untasted that together and that had that similar vein of reduction. I've never seen that in a rosé before. I think that's, yeah, that's the, the recent wondrous ones. That's lovely. Yeah, I tasted with um, Diana um, Snowden, sis, in, um, at Dujac as well, and tasted her 17s, which are really shining at the moment. She's about to rack them, or has racked them now. Cool. And the 17 Ishizo for me was just next level beautiful. It had this sort of wild tea aroma and um, sort of a bergamot character. Oh, that's cool. Really so. Yeah. That will be an amazing wine when it gets to bustle. Thank you. I really do appreciate your time because this is uh, this has been a fascinating, <laughs> fascinating chat. <laughs> yeah, I think we've we've covered quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What do you got drinking there? Uh, Township Seven Rosé. This is a lovely. Cheers. Cheers. It's a pre dinner while you barbecue while you barbecue type of thing type of wine and you do like uh, your rosés while we bar while we barbecue I do like the rosé we had some lovely rosés in mm. um, Europe yeah on our recent trip yeah in France uh, ordered usually a, a piche of rosé yeah with lunch <laughs> and uh, smoked salmon and it was lovely Did you, because I know I did a bunch of scotch tasting while I was there, did you get a bunch of uh, a bunch of tastings in while you were there in we, Scotland? We had hoped to do more, but uh, we, we did probably too many castles and palaces, but whatever. We did get to the Oban Distillery yeah. and had uh, the, the full tour there, which was really interesting. Um, 
Uh, we stayed in Oban for a few days. Lovely yeah. little seaside. Lovely port. little town. Yeah. yeah. Really enjoyable. Um, breakfast was a little expensive at our hotel. However, um, accommodations were lovely, but the Oban distillery was lovely. The um, we, we tasted in Edinburgh Castle some cream liqueur, almost like a Bailey's, but it was made mm. with scotch. Oh, cool! And uh, it was really good. Got a little bit of that. To bring home as a is that your little here. that little yeah, sample? The, oh, the nice. Little, the little milk cake. Yeah. Milk cask. Um, That's that, cool. That, yeah, so it's, it'll be nice over the winter time. Yeah, for sure. To warm everybody up. Uh, that was interesting. But no, we didn't get to as many scotch making places, but you did. Yeah. Um, I liked Oban. I like that town, especially. It's, it's nice with having that kind of mountain, kind of that you know cliff face behind it mm -hmm. and it really is kind of jammed up against it and then you have the you have the sea like right there I was amazed at the amount of ferry traffic in and out of there yeah that port, was, that little port that yeah, they have there yeah amazing the amount yeah. of ferry traffic yeah they uh, I like I like that distillery it was kind of cool the Edredura one was really cool as well and that was one where lots of little tastings and finding what we like and for me, I always thought, because I like bourbon, mm -hmm. I always thought, okay, well, I'm going to like a real sweet kind of scotch, right, because of, the, of yep. the bourbon style. But then we started trying those really peaty ones, really smoky, yep. you know, smoky flavor and, and aroma. And that one, those were the two, the, big, the two big ones that we brought home were ones that were really peaty and had that nice nose of, like, smoke. And so I was quite surprised that, we both and both Laurie and I really like that. Yeah. So it's the sort of thing that uh, it's a bit of an acquired taste. Yeah. The first time you have it, it kind of hits your senses too strong. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then when you go back to it and you really analyze it and and you sip a little bit. Yeah. You get to appreciate the the peatiness of it yeah. and the smokiness of it. And, well, I uh, could sit. I, what we had one the other night and I was just sitting smelling I smelled mm -hmm. it for 15 minutes mm -hmm. and then I have a sip and then yep. another 10 minutes I have another sip mm -hmm. because just the the nose something with wine too you find that yep. especially because I like that's what I like about Pinot's you get that forest floor earthy uh, nose and I could just sit and smell it yeah. and not even drink it for 15 minutes and, and then you finally drink it because that nose is so good on it it is yeah it is it was kind of a cool, so Edredur was kind of cool because Big Farm, yep. right, had their own barley there. Produced their own produced barley. Produced their own, yep. had their own water. Great little tasting room. Really nice, really accommodating. And, and you know, they had the, obviously the distilling and, and malting floor and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Everything's there. But nice little tasting room. And, and they had so many different types that we could try. And the one, like that one with the rum cask finish. Yes, that's a nice little, yeah. yeah. So, uh, and then the other one we went to was the Tomatin one. We stopped in that one, which was just, out, I think, just outside Edinburgh. Oh, okay. Just as we're leaving, as we're leaving Edinburgh, it was, it was outside there, and we stopped there. But there's so many, we could have stopped, like, 
exactly. 20 times. Yeah. The dinners we had um, in, in Scotland, in Edinburgh, there's a beautiful little Italian restaurant. Oh, yeah. Just off the main drag. Um, in Inverness. Yeah. There was a, a lovely little, uh, several little Italian restaurants. In Wales, in the town we were in, next to Conway, Ludden, um, they had a beautiful Italian restaurant. We basically ate Italian all across Great Britain. <laughs> and the wines were lovely too. Yeah. Uh, even the host wines uh, were from, you know, multiple Ticino or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they were run by Italians. And uh, so here we are in Scotland looking for Scottish fare and reading Italian, drinking Italian wines. Um, that's my favorite. We found that when we were, especially with the breakfast, the kind of full Scottish breakfast that they would have, like with the blood pudding. Really Magus. enjoy Magus. that. Yeah. Oh, and the haggis and the haggis, yeah. And the oh. back bacon. The I back bacon. Couldn't get enough of back bacon. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we uh, we definitely had some nice breakfast. That's for sure. Gonna check the steaks. Excellent. And the salmon. A little surf and turf. I think we're gonna leave it there for now. Thanks for listening. For more wine conversation and podcast updates, you can follow us on Instagram at Ian's Wine Truths. Check out our website for great photos of our guests, friendsofthevine.podbean.com. Take care. Have a glass for me.